This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. This is the last chapter of the series, Three Strikes and You're Dead, where I detail cases of murderers who were caught, sent to prison, and then were inexplicably set free to kill again. Because I cover cases that occurred in the past, some in the distant past, you may wonder whether this could happen today. Well, this next story will answer this question and have you wondering, is there a convicted killer loose in my town? According to the U.S. Department of Justice's latest report, at the close of the year 2016, just over 4.5 million former prisoners were under community supervision in the United States, meaning they were either on probation or parole. This was the lowest number reported since 1999. The approximate number of parolees in the United States totaled 870,000 at that time. For those who were released on parole between the years 2000 and 2015, approximately 87% were male and 13% female. And approximately 30% of these parolees had committed violent offenses. The state of Pennsylvania had the highest number of parolees, with 112,000. Texas came in a close second with 111,000. California was third at 86,000. And New York State had about half that number at 44,000. While we may agree that people should be given a second chance after serving their time, it is also true that some believe this is inappropriate for the most problematic criminals, those who commit the most serious offenses, murder, rape, and sexual assault, for example. There are arguments against granting this privilege to those with long criminal histories, those who do not accept responsibility for their crimes, are unrepentant, and those who have committed violent offenses while incarcerated, to name just a few examples. And while we may feel this should go without saying or should be common sense, the release of certain prisoners has certainly stirred up controversy and caused the public to wonder if our justice system was doing an adequate job protecting its citizens. Certainly, this was the case regarding Kenneth Allen McDuff that I shared with you earlier this month in episode 118. And it certainly applies to the case I'll be detailing in this episode as well. Michael Keith Moon was first arrested and jailed for a murder in 1981 and was later released. Even though he was arrested for another violent crime after he was paroled, he was given yet another chance and set free once again. Years later, a cold case investigative team discovered Moon was responsible for yet another murder 30 years earlier. Did this finally put Moon away for life? I can tell you this, you won't believe this story. This is Chapter 4 of Three Strikes and You're Dead, the case of Michael Keith Moon. A young woman named Chipper Lay returned to her cabin at the Silver State Lodge one cold November morning in 1978. She had just come off the night shift at a Denny's restaurant where she worked as a short-order cook. She was looking forward to getting home, taking off her dirty uniform that smelled of bacon grease, and getting off her aching feet. Chipper had left the Southern California town of Bakersfield, an area then primarily concentrated around agricultural and oil field jobs, and set out for Reno, Nevada. Reno, called the biggest little city in the world, 
was a mecca of hotels and gambling casinos. It may have seemed more fun, exciting, or just a change of pace from sleepy Bakersfield. But whatever the reason, Chipper decided to relocate to Reno just six months earlier. She had been joined by her friend, Rhonda Salazar, age 26, a recent divorcee. Rhonda, or RJ as she was called by her friends, had decided to make the move to Reno after the divorce from her husband Richard. She had also worked at Denny's as a waitress for a few months, but had recently found another job. RJ was outgoing and had made several friends during her time in Reno. Some were co-workers, and others were the customers she'd served pancakes and hamburgers to at the diner. Along the way, she'd gotten a tip that the copy service store, located around the corner from the restaurant, was hiring. She applied and was hired just one month earlier. It was just 6 a.m. when Chipper entered the cabin. RJ would probably still be asleep or just getting up to shower and dress for work. The cabin was quiet, so Chipper assumed it was the former. The women also shared the cabin with three dogs, one a very large dog, a Great Dane. So the small cabin was always bustling and full of life. But today, although the dogs came to the door to greet Chipper as she entered, the place seemed unusually quiet. She walked through the common living areas and towards RJ's bedroom door, which was open. Through it, she could see the prone figure of the petite, dark-haired girl. RJ was lying across the foot of the bed on her back. Something about her position from that angle looked odd. As Chipper entered the doorway to the room, she stopped, frozen in horror. RJ's lifeless body lay very still, her eyes open and staring at the ceiling. A large butcher knife protruded from her chest. Her arms were raised over her head, as if she had tried to use them in her last moments to ward off whatever evil had entered that room. She was very clearly dead. Chipper forced her legs to move as she fled from the room to call the police. It was determined that the young woman had been killed just hours earlier. Rhonda had been brutally beaten by her attacker. The many injuries she had sustained from the beating had been a factor in her death aside from the stab wound to the chest. The knife used was discovered to be part of a set from their own kitchen. This, as well as the fact that investigators believed the Great Dane would have attempted to stop a stranger from attacking RJ, pointed to her murderer as someone she knew. At least, that was the theory the investigators were working with. They even thought their suspect might be female. RJ had had many women friends while in Reno, but wasn't close with any men that they knew of. But investigators didn't have much to go on. As the weeks passed without any breaks in the case, a reward was offered through the Secret Witness Program, a precursor to the Crime Stoppers Program that would spread throughout the country in later years. Anyone with information about an unsolved case could come forward anonymously and be given a number that they could later use to collect the reward should their tip lead to an arrest and conviction. A $2,500 reward was offered to anyone with information about the murder of Rhonda Jeannie Salazar. Although the offer appeared in the newspaper for weeks, the case didn't receive many tips. But someone must have offered some information because a few weeks after the murder, the secret witness column in the newspaper added the following. Quote, A possible suspect is described as 25 to 30 years of age, approximately 5 foot 9 inches tall with blonde hair, a mustache, and gold wire-rimmed glasses. Unquote. Still, 
there was no further progress on the case, and it remained unsolved for three years. Even though Rhonda Salazar's murder yielded no obvious suspects, and they had very little to go on, detectives continued to work the case, hoping to come across a viable lead. Salazar was said to have no enemies. Her ex-husband and roommate had both been cleared of any responsibility in her slaying, and the case remained cold. One piece of evidence detectives did have were some unmatched fingerprints found at the scene. Finally, in 1981, they caught a break when a fingerprint comparison finally hit on a suspect. Michael Keith Moon had been questioned, as had his wife, Julie Reese, at the time of the murder. Reese and Moon had known Rhonda Salazar, and Reese may have resided with her briefly in Reno. But the physical evidence found at the scene did not point to the couple as suspects at that time. It is unclear why they were not able to match the fingerprint to either Moon or Reese, although it's possible that the fingerprints were not discovered until later. In any case, as the investigation continued, detectives gave Moon a second look, and the fingerprint evidence was compared to him. They were a match. Moon, originally from San Diego, had recently moved back to California and was working as a cable television installer in the Santa Cruz area. On November 4, 1981, exactly three years after the murder, Michael Keith Moon was taken into custody by Santa Cruz police detectives who were working in cooperation with the Reno police. Moon's wife, Julie Reese, was located in Mendocino, California, and also arrested in connection with the murder. Moon was held on $150,000 bond. Both Moon and Reese waived extradition to Nevada and were transported to be questioned by authorities in Reno. There, Moon was charged with the murder of Rhonda Salazar and held in the Reno jail. Soon after his arrest, Moon agreed to plead guilty and was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole. In 1990, after serving just nine years for the murder, Michael Keith Moon was released on parole for the first time. Michael Keith Moon was released on parole in 1990 and moved to Ohio. There he found employment with a fiber optic company. He traveled all around the eastern part of the United States, installing cable. In 1991, less than two years after his release, Moon was living in Woodstock, Illinois. He was in a bar one night when, for some reason, he became enraged and attacked an elderly man who was a customer at the bar. A third man stopped Moon's attack, most surely saving the man's life. Moon had stabbed him over a dozen times. He was charged with attempted murder and received a 20-year sentence. But in the year 2000, he was released once again on parole after serving just nine years. Moon's parole was soon revoked. The reason is not entirely clear. But he was returned to prison once again. He was released for the last time in 2005. Now, you would imagine that someone who'd been convicted of a brutal murder, released, and within a short time committed another attempted murder, would have the book thrown at him. But it almost seemed like Moon's second conviction was treated as if it was his first offense. Perhaps this was because his second attack was committed in a different state. Whatever the reason, Moon was released 
and even allowed to leave the state, returning to Reno, Nevada. He would be free for two years before police would come looking for him again. The next chapter in this saga takes us not forward in time, but backwards, all the way to 1977, a year and a half before the murder of Rhonda Salazar. On May 1, 1977, a body was found lying on a concrete floor in an empty home. A group of new tract homes was being built in Escondido, California, a bedroom community located about 30 minutes north of San Diego. The body was that of a young male. He was found lying partially nude in a pool of blood in the garage of a home on Falconer Road that was still under construction. An Escondido police officer was conducting a routine check of the construction site at about 3.15 a.m. when he discovered the body. The deceased was identified as a 24-year-old construction worker by the name of Laborio Landin Vain. He had been beaten to death. Investigators discovered that Vain had gone to a bar called the Pastime Club the previous evening with his cousin Gabriel Landin and another co-worker, Fernando Verona. At the bar, Vain began playing a game of pool with a white male with blonde hair. As the evening wound down, the white male offered Vain, Verona, and Landine a ride home. The men all piled into his yellow van. Landine told police that he exited the van to walk his co-worker, who'd had too much to drink, into his apartment. When he returned to the place where they had parked, the yellow van with the driver and Vain as his sole passenger was gone. Police investigated the man's murder, but the case went cold. It stayed that way for 30 years. In 2007, Escondido Police Chief Jim Marr formed their first cold case homicide team. Retired Escondido Police Detective Sergeant Chuck Gaylor was rehired by the department as a paid reserve officer to run the team. He was joined by retired FBI agent Norm White, as well as a retired homicide lieutenant and an Escondido Police Department homicide investigator. Gaylor had been a rookie police officer for EPD when Vain's body was found at the construction site in 1977. He had been on patrol the night of the murder. One of the first cases the cold case team began to reinvestigate was the 30-year unsolved murder of Laborio Landin Vain. The first problem the team encountered was the evidence stored for three decades in the Escondido Police Department's property room was largely destroyed. Rats had invaded and eaten or otherwise ruined most of the evidence. However, the crime scene photos from Vain's case were one of the few things that had survived. Vain's cousin, Gabriel Landin, was located living near Aguascaliente, Mexico, and was interviewed by Chuck Gaylor. He recalled the night his cousin had been killed. He told the same account he had in 1977, that he and his cousin were at the pastime club playing pool with a white male who drove a yellow van. The man, whose name he did not know, had offered them a ride home. When he returned from dropping his friend at his door, the yellow van and his cousin were gone. The cold case team conducted over 100 interviews across the country, in some cases talking to witnesses who police failed to interview in 1977. 
one person whose name came up during the reinvestigation was Michael Keith Moon. Moon grew up in San Diego and had a number of convictions for a variety of offenses in the years prior to 1977. The cold case team had also discovered that Moon was convicted and then paroled for the murder of Rhonda Salazar in Reno in 1978. She, like Vaine, had also been beaten to death. Norm White, who'd been with the FBI for 28 years, was assigned the task of having the partial bloody fingerprint found at the crime scene run through every state database. In late 2007, a fingerprint analyst was finally able to find a match. It belonged to the paroled convict, Michael Keith Moon. Moon was picked up in Reno, Nevada, and questioned about the three-decades-old murder. In October 2007, Michael Keith Moon, now 59 years old, was questioned by detectives from the Escondido Cold Case Homicide Team. He volunteered that he had lived in Escondido in 1977. Specifically, he had lived on Oak Hill Drive, just one mile from the place Laborio Vallene had been found murdered. He was employed as a construction worker at the time. The victim had also been employed in the construction trade. Moon also admitted that he often frequented the pastime bar, the last place Vallene and his cousin had visited before his murder. As a matter of fact, the bar had been owned by the aunt of Moon's longtime girlfriend. Detectives viewed booking photos of Moon from the mid-1970s and thought he resembled the description that Vaine's cousin and the other man had given of the person who'd played pool with them on the night of April 30th. Photos were shown to the witnesses who later identified Moon as the man driving the yellow van. The accumulated evidence, the eyewitness identification of Moon, the fingerprint match and Moon's own statements putting him in the area at the time of the murder, convinced the San Diego District Attorney's Office to file charges against him for the murder. Moon was arrested on December 12, 2007 in Reno and extradited to San Diego. He was arraigned on January 4, 2008. The Vaine murder was the oldest case the cold case team had investigated. It was also the team's first solved case. Vaine's family finally had answers to this long, unsolved murder. On December 3, 2008, Michael Keith Moon pled guilty to the second-degree murder of Laborio Landine Vaine. Moon had been shooting pool with the 24-year-old man, a stranger, and had lost money to him. He'd become angry and saw his chance to attack him when he was left alone with him in the van. He drove him to the construction site and beat him until he was dead. Moon was sentenced to eight years and sent to Richard J. Donovan Prison. Now, I know what you're thinking. How could Moon only be sentenced to eight years for such a brutal murder? According to Deputy District Attorney Brock Arstel, that was the maximum sentence he could receive, since they had to base it on 1977 sentencing guidelines. Crazy, right? But that was the law. So, that would mean he would at least be behind bars until sometime in 2016, right? Wrong. Moon served only half of his sentence before being released on parole. Insane. He was released on January 12, 2012, 
to a halfway house in downtown San Diego. His placement was arranged by the state parole agency. The agency does not disclose where parolees are sent, so beside the board and the parole officer Moon was assigned to report to, no one, including witnesses, victims, or family members, would be given that information. If requested, they may receive notice of the prisoner's release, and possibly the county he was released to, but that might be all the information given. At the time of his release, Detective Chuck Gaylor, who'd done so much to bring Vyne's murderer to justice, made this comment to San Diego Union-Tribune reporter Pauline Rippard. Quote, It is appropriate for the public to be aware of the fact that there are people like Michael Moon out there, and these people pose a risk to society. Unquote. Gaylor characterized Moon as a sadistic thrill killer. He was also of the opinion that Moon may have more victims than authorities were aware of. He pointed to the time Moon was employed as a fiber-optic cable installer working up and down the East Coast after released on parole for Rhonda Salazar's murder. Gaylor was quoted as saying, Our concern is that all the time he was out of prison before, he was traveling. He could be going to bars, picking up people, and killing them. I think it's very likely he's committed other crimes, up to and including murder that he's gotten away with. He's a real ongoing danger to the community. He's a cold, calculated killer, he concluded. What is frustrating about cases I cover where the perpetrators have since been released from prison is that often it is difficult to find information regarding their whereabouts or any information about their current activities. Once a person pays their debt to society and is released, it is appropriate for them to go on with their lives without being harassed and be given the opportunity for a fresh start. Many people would agree with this. But what if there is some disagreement regarding if the punishment fit the crime? For the murder of two people, Moon served only 12 years in total. And like Moon, what if the parolee has been afforded a second chance only to continue their criminal activities, even to committing murder? Should they then be locked up and the key tossed away forever? Let me know what you think. I really dug to try and find out if Michael Keith Moon had any more parole violations or other crimes on his record after his release. Detective Chuck Gaylor, interviewed three months afterwards, said that he'd found no information that Moon had violated the terms of his parole since his release. That was the most current information I found in the records. But you know me. I was still curious. I really wanted some kind of ending to the story that wasn't just, who knows? So I continued to dig. I continued to dig after 1 a.m. the morning I was to finish writing the story. And I think, I think... I may have found something. There is a record for a Michael K. Moon, born in 1948, which would make him the right age. This man had resided in San Diego and Sparks, Nevada, which also matches Moon's history. Most of this record is marked as suppressed, but I did find one detail that could be accessed. This person, named Michael K. Moon, died at the age of 66 on March 15th 2015, in San Diego County. Perhaps this finally, finally ended the saga of two-time murderer Michael K. Moon and ends this story. 
That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Hey, did you hear that I've launched a second true crime podcast for your listening pleasure? It's called Let's Talk About True Crime. The first episode was released last Tuesday, February 19th. With each episode, I'll bring you a fresh and spicy take on the true crime genre. I and a special guest host will talk about what's new, hot, and trending in true crime. Guest hosts might include your favorite podcasters, investigators, journalists, documentarians, and even celebrity guests. The only prerequisite is that they love true crime and tacos. Episode 1 featured my special guest host, Yolanda, from Not Perfect or Functional Podcast, a.k.a. My Little Sister. We discussed the four-part Netflix documentary, Conversations with the Killer, the Ted Bundy Tapes. You can download it now on iTunes, Spotify, CastBox, and other podcast apps. Next up, I'll have another special co-host who I think you'll be excited about. We'll be discussing Lorena, a four-part docuseries about the Lorena Bobbitt case. The executive producer for this series is Jordan Peele, director of Get Out, nominated for several Oscars. You can watch that right now on Amazon Prime if you want to check it out before our discussion. I hope you'll join us. Not giving away who the guest host is, you have to subscribe to find out. The second episode of Let's Talk About True Crime will release next month. You can find links to the podcast in the show notes. Also next month, I'm beginning a brand new series on Once Upon a Crime that I'm so excited about sharing with you. The first episode will release on March 11th. Finally, I've been working around the clock this month. I also released a bonus episode yesterday. It's an interview with a very special guest, actor and producer Allison Sweeney. Allison, who has acted on Days of Our Lives, as well as several TV movies and was formerly the host of The Biggest Loser, has a new series of mysteries just released on the Hallmark Channel. Besides the fact that these mystery movies are so much fun to watch, Allison plays get this, a true crime podcaster who investigates cold cases. I love this, and I think you will too. Oh, and if that's not reason enough to be a fan of Allison Sweeney, she is also a huge true crime podcast fan and has been a guest on the podcast Real Crime Profile and Undisclosed. It was a fun interview, and I know you'll enjoy it. This is the last interview I'll be releasing on Once Upon a Crime. After this month, all the bonus episode interviews will be released on a separate podcast called The Next Chapter. I'll be sharing the links to that, ahem, third podcast offering, as soon as it's available for you to subscribe. Thank you so much for letting me be a full-time podcaster where I can share all these fun and exciting true crime projects with you. Without you, I couldn't do this, and I love it so much, and I truly, truly feel lucky. Thank you, thank you. I hope you enjoy listening as much as I love producing these shows. Now it's time to do the latest Patreon shoutouts and pick this month's drawing winner. Our newest Patreon supporters are Nicole Galenso, Susie Moore, Holly Herman, Christy Van Lair, Julie Betty, Carol Lara, Autumn Matthews, Jessica Lawn, Courtney Halchak, Casey Adolfson, Tracy Kamar, Zoe Rahimi, Tara Vernon, Vivia Bow, Johanna Vickland, Sarah Light, and Magna Anderson. Our winner for February will receive a true crime journal where they can jot down notes about their favorite documentaries or podcasts, or just look cool in their next work meeting. They'll also receive some OUAC swag. And the winner is Bryn St. Martin of Kyle, Texas. Congratulations, Bryn! 
that prize pack is on its way to you. If you want to become a patron and be eligible for our monthly drawings, just go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime and pledge at any level. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Until next time, be good to one another.